Lord, I don't know all the things that are on all of the hearts that are in this room this morning, but you do. There are great needs throughout our world. And the undeniable truth is that our world needs a rescuer. Our world needs hope that is only found in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I think of the families that have loved ones on that flight. Again, we don't know the situation. We don't know what's happened yet, but we can pray to you for comfort and for deliverance and that even in this darkest hour, your light would shine through. Lord, these conflicts that are raging all over the world that are so nuanced and have so many layers to them that politics just cannot get to the end of them. We need your help. We need you. And I know you tell us that these times of struggle and hardship will come, but we also know that you've overcome the world. And so we look to you this morning in these situations. I pray for those all over the world that are suffering, that are in bondage to sin, that just feel like there's no way out. I pray for those that are somehow entrapped in slavery, that the life before them is one where they see no light. Somehow in these dark moments, I pray that your light would shine through. I pray for our church family. We do think of our dear friend, Wilson. We think of Shirley, whose health is struggling as well, and many others that have needs that we're not aware of or that have yet gone unspoken. Lord, we leave these before you and ask that you would work. You are a great and mighty God. You are the great physician, and we trust you. And you are also a strong and mighty God that says there is nothing too hard for you to do. Nothing is impossible and that we can cast our cares upon you and that we can find rest in your son. And so this morning, Lord, as we look at your word, teach us what it means to rest in you. Teach us what it means to live out the truth that you are able, that you have gone before us, that you have provided a way out so that we can stand up under it. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the time you've given me in your word, especially in this passage in Matthew 11. And I ask that as we look at it together, that you would open our hearts, not to Mike's words or illustrations or stories, but much more importantly, to exactly what you have for us to take away from it today, from your text, from the words you spoke to us through your son, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. If you would open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, We got through last week uh, the first two parts of Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30, which is the end of it is a very, very famous passage that many of you have uttered before. Uh, Most of us have probably heard it in one setting or another. But we often, as I posited last week, don't look very carefully at the reality of verses 20 through 27 and what that means for us. So a quick review, if you weren't with us last week, is that we need a good judge. Our world is broken. I've given you plenty of illustrations of that just in our prayer time. Our world is suffering. We need one to judge us who is righteous and holy. We want a good judge. I know we don't like to think about the reality that we are accountable for our actions, 
But when we think about being accused of something, we want the one who is going to sit in judgment of us to be righteous, to be blameless, and to be holy. Because indeed, we are all accountable for our actions. And our behavior often indicates that we want there to be a judge. But when it comes to us personally, we don't want to be held accountable. And that's why not only do we need a judge, but we come to the reality that we need an advocate. We need, to some, we need someone to stand on our behalf, to stand before God the Father on our behalf. You see, Jesus is exalted as both the judge and the advocate. Just like I read to you out of 1 John 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But anybody... But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is, and this is imperative that we understand this as we move through the text. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So Jesus looks at the world around him, looks at those very places where he has proclaimed and performed his greatest miracles, and they haven't believed in him. And he breathes down a judgment and a curse upon them. Says, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. It would have been better for Sodom, who, as we looked at last week, was not only guilty of egregious sexual sin that is greater than really much we can imagine today, but they had also puffed themselves up with pride. They had also made sure they were nice and comfortable comfortable at the expense of the poor and the needy, as we see in Ezekiel. And they were judged harshly for those things. But Jesus tells us that it would have been better for Sodom than for those in Chorazin, for those in Capernaum, those that got to see Jesus face to face and decided that their own way was better. You see, we need a judge, we need a rescuer, and we need an advocate because it can feel like this life we lead is just too much to bear. We look around us. I live in Saikung, and on my way home from work most days, I pass Ma'an Shan, the mountain, not the town. I do pass the town as well. But once you get into a section of the road in Ma'an Shan, this time of year, it is always clouded in fog and low clouds. And you just can't see. And it feels like the darkness just consumes the valley around Three Fathoms Cove. And it's kind of, it feels eerie and mystical. But at the end of the day, you can't see what's between Amos and I. It is so heavy. Sometimes in our lives, we feel that same burden. We feel that same heaviness. And we've seen that Jesus is raised up as the judge. He has the authority by God to look into our lives and ways and hold us accountable, not necessarily something that excites us, but it should. He is just, but he is not only just, but as we know about Jesus, he is full of compassion and mercy and grace. And he says, I'll take your place. I will be your atoning sacrifice. Last week I shared to you that not so long ago I had gotten next to a bus that obscured my vision of a traffic light and inadvertently but still wrongly 
had gone through a traffic light uh, while it was turning red. And I saw that wonderful flash of light that indicates I was caught and that my action would be judged. Well, interestingly enough, I got a letter earlier this week, one from the government saying, pay up. But then another is someone that had written me and said, I'll stand in your behalf. I will pay this penalty for you. I didn't deserve that. I deserved the punishment that that was given because I had made a mistake. I had broken a traffic law. I was wrong. And I was judged fairly for that. But someone out of love and grace said, I want to stand in your behalf. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to stand for you. And that was such a tangible picture to me of God's grace. We don't deserve to be rescued. We are broken people. We are frail. We are weak. And we continue to make decisions that are all about us rather than all about bringing him glory and praise. And yet Jesus Christ went to the cross, gave his body and his blood for us, that we may be forgiven and live the full lives both now and for all eternity, knowing that he has gone before us to the Father, that he has taken the judgment that we deserve. It has been dispelled dispelled upon him. And that's where we get to today because then, once we understand that he has risen victoriously over our sin, And he paid the price for our sin, the atoning sacrifice that he paid for us, that his grace is given, that we address the third truth. Not only do we need Jesus to be our judge, do we need him to be our advocate, our revelation that points us to the Father that says, you can only know the Father through me, our advocate, Jesus. But then he does something amazing. He says this. He says, why don't we read it together? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. Jesus proclaims judgment, acting very much as the righteous judge on Bethsaida, on Chorazin, on Capernaum. Then he moves on and he says, essentially, you can't know God and understand God unless you are God. So we need one to act on our behalf to help us understand who God is. And that person is Jesus. He said, no one can know the Father except through me, the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he's standing there on our behalf. And then he does something interesting. You see, when we have problems, our initial response, if we're talking to someone about their problems, is to say, you should go to God, right? That's a good answer. We should point people to God in their times of trouble, in their times of suffering and challenge and hardship. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus gives an invitation to himself. He speaks right to these people and he says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
153 years ago in March of that year, which I have to remember is 1861, 153 years ago, my home country, the United States of America, was in peril. Uh, If any of you know your history, you know that the 16th president of the United States of America had just been inaugurated. And he had been inaugurated under a sea of conflict, under a sea of tension, and under a sea of crisis. And not but days and moments after he had given a rousing speech proclaiming that America needed to stay together, the union as it was referred to then, needed to stay together Abraham Lincoln was brought head on with the clash of how do we define humanity? The clash of the southern states, both for economic and for selfish reasons, wanted to make sure that everyone followed their practice that slaves were nothing but property. But there were those in the north, uh, in the north, the union, all of it was considered the union at this point, that said, no, they are humans and they deserve to be free. And we had the underpinnings of a very, very national and very, very public crisis that was made further worse because one of the things that Abraham Lincoln said in his speech, his inaugural address, was that the federal government will protect her property. Now, there was a military base in Fort Sumter, Charleston Bay, South Carolina, in the heart of the Confederate South. And in that land, the supplies were growing low. Now, for Abraham Lincoln, a brand new president who many were already questioning whether he had the right makeup and leadership ability, and and already the questions were being said that William Seward should have been the president. His leadership was questioned. His moxie, you know, that stick-to-itiveness was questioned. His wisdom was questioned. What kind of decisions would he make? And Fort Sumter presented a very unique challenge because if Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, gave the order to resupply that fort like he wanted to, it would have said signs that we're preparing for war. If he chose to do nothing then it would have shown signs of weakness that they're not going to stand by the words that he had just uttered but a few days before. He was bearing under the weight of this tremendous pressure that in every way had the threat of ripping apart a very new country. America doesn't have the rich heritage that China has of a thousand and two thousand years of history. 1777 to 1850, 1861 is not a long period of time in the life of a country. America was still and still is figuring out who she is. And if I'm Abraham Lincoln, I would have been trying to hide to figure out what to do. But not only that, but Abraham Lincoln was troubled in every way by people that wanted jobs now that he was the president. Oh, we helped you get elected. You should give us a position in your cabinet, in your position, in your staff, this and that. And so all day long, the line went forever for those that wanted to speak to him. And Abraham Lincoln was committed to speaking to as many people as he could because he felt like that was the right thing to do. All the while, this burden was weighing heavily on him. And interestingly, 
I wondered, well, how in the world does he get everything done? As did William Seward. He wrote, I'm not sure this man has the right priorities and understands the right focus. And William Seward was a very strong and direct leader. But you know, Abraham Lincoln continued to meet with people during the day and listen and help where he could. Because at night, he would retire to a certain spot and sit in a chair. And Doris Kearns Goodwin tells us that he would sit, he would cross his legs. Abe Lincoln was a tall man. He was skinny and and scrawny and didn't fit very well in most of the furniture he had. So he would arch and lean and, and cross his legs, put his hand on his Bible and ask for help. A country in great peril, in great crisis, was led by a man that knew enough to at least know that God's word was a good place to turn for help. And we're told that he was able to rest. And the author surmises that part of his ability to rest was that time in solitude, that time of rest with only his Bible in his hand. But I wonder about us. You see, we love this verse. We love that Jesus tells us to come to him, all of us who are weary and heavy burdened. Because most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can think of many ways in which those burdens weigh heavily on us. But when push comes to shove, my question for us today is do we believe the rest of what Jesus says? Because not only does he say, come, lay all of your burdens on me, but he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And I will find rest and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Twinkie, with the help of her husband, who is apparently on a leash, uh, did a great job. No, he's not. He's a wonderful man. But did a great job illustrating that we can put these burdens on our life. And the Jewish people of that day faced all sorts of burdens. You know, the Greek culture around them was such that if they did the wrong thing, they could be attacked from outside. The religious culture of the day actually looked at the idea of being yoked to the law of God as a good thing. And so in order for you to be, uh, to be a young man that was ready for his bar mitzvah, you had to understand the yoke of God's word. And it was seen as a positive thing. And it still is. God's word rightly understood is a wonderful yoke to carry upon us. But unfortunately for the religious leaders of the day, what had happened is they had begun to place the yoke as the yoke of legalism and push people down. And God's word wasn't meant to be used in that way. God's word was meant to be used as an application to draw us closer to himself first, to draw us closer to one another, his family, and then further to shine light into the world saying, this is who God is. You can see him through how his word teaches us to live and follow him. And instead, the rules had gotten so oppressive 
that the people were breaking under it, that it had become not about a relationship with God, their rightful king, but it had become about the rules and how terrible they were at life. It had become exalting the select few rather than enjoying community together. And then when Jesus performed his miracles, when Jesus reveals who he is, when Jesus reveals the hidden nature of man, and he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he said, you're the worst of us. They didn't want to believe that. They didn't want to understand that they needed rescued. They didn't want to understand that the religious law wasn't the burden they were to be carrying. Because you see what happens is we can often misunderstand this passage. We think that Jesus sometimes, and I've heard it taught before, tells us to cast off our yoke. And he does. The yoke of the world, he does invite us to cast off. To replace it with another one. And again, just like with accountability, we don't always like to be held accountable for our actions. We don't like the idea that we need to follow someone else's direction. But that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This little phrase, learn from me, has been a challenge for translators for centuries because depending on who you are and which way you choose, you're either telling us to learn from him or learn of him. And I believe the best way to understand what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, watch how I have lived. Watch who I am and learn of me. Learn what I've already done and will continue to do and learn from me what I have already said and what I will continue to say. Because he is our great teacher. Three weeks ago, we were talked, we were introduced to the cost of discipleship. And he invites us here to follow him, the greatest of all teachers. And he says, take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Interestingly, Abraham Lincoln, when he started his presidency, was not seen as a strong leader, particularly wise, or of any great conviction. Yet, all this time later, 153 years later, how do we see Abraham Lincoln in the eyes of America? I don't know how the rest of the world sees him, but if you're an American and don't like Abraham Lincoln, we think there's something wrong with you. Because he proved himself to be a leader of great conviction, of great humility, and great strength. In Team of Rivals, this book I've been reading for what feels like forever, I'm halfway through, and I've read 500 pages, and that's a bit discouraging. But one of the things that made Lincoln unique was he picked all of his political rivals and he brought them into his home, into his family, into his leadership circle. That's a sign of strength that's under control. And another word for that is meekness. Lincoln was known to be gentle when needed and strong when needed. And then, and Lincoln is in no way God. He is in no way the son of God. But he modeled some tremendous leadership traits that I believe he learned from Jesus himself. Because Jesus tells us right here, he is gentle and humble in heart. When he needed to lead strongly, he did it. But for so many, as Jesus sat down with the woman at the well, he spoke the truth. But he did it with such love, such compassion, 
and with such grace. When the adulteress was brought for him, what was Jesus' message? Yeah, you stink at life. You have sinned and you will burn for your sin. No. He looked around and he said, let you who is without sin throw the first stone. Did he make an allowance for her sin? No. He told her her sins were forgiven. He would pay the price for her. My king is gentle and humble and tells me to carry his yoke upon my back because you know why? It'll fit just right. It'll be the way that allows me to walk through life right where I need to go. But what happens is along the way, I get distracted by my friends. You're not a distraction in the bad way, Brian. I love you. But I get distracted by the ways of the world. I get distracted and I'll start and I'll end up over in this direction. Yet I know I'm supposed to be walking right this way because his yoke is easy and he's shown me where I am to go. Where am I to go? As a man that wants to be a disciple of Christ, I am called to love him and love others and make disciples of all nations. Ladies and gentlemen, it really is that simple. (laughs) All of the law is summed up in these things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And interestingly, when Jesus teaches us here that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, he refers all the way back to a passage in Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah was told to prophesy, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And when you walk in the good way, what's going to happen? You will find rest for your souls. But unfortunately, the Israelites chose. They will not walk in it. Later on, Jesus says, oh, come to me. I am the right way. Oh, I believe he said it like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus invites us to a place of rest. I'm known on my tennis team as having a very large tennis bag. And so I thought I would show you today. And you see, this is my tennis bag. This, if I need it to, can fit all six of my tennis rackets. And the interesting thing about it is if I, if I asked Amos to carry it, it's, it weighs, I think, about 25 pounds. And it has everything I think I might need for tennis. Okay? So you look, and, and you've got over here, well, you've got, the, you've got the rackets, right? So we need those. And you need two because, well, two looks cooler than one. No, there, there is reason. Then if it's hot, you play in Hong Kong. You need something for your dirty clothes because you're going to get sweaty. So that's what that is for. Unfortunately, I have some physical challenges with my age. So I need a smelly arm sleeve to help my elbow. And don't smell it. Um, I also have uh, about 20 wristbands to help me with the sweat. That's one pocket. But what else do I think maybe I might need for tennis on any given day? Well, if I'm tired, I need coffee. That's true. I drink coffee on the tennis court. I need the proper shoes because God forbid you try to play tennis in shoes other than tennis shoes. Uh, 
uh, need my water bottle with my special alkaline filter that helps balance my body out, and it's very cool. I need that. I need a towel, obviously. I need extra socks. should probably use tennis balls. You get the idea. And, that, and then there's another pocket that goes with us. But at the end of the day, Jesus tells us, come to me, all who are you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What do I really need to play tennis? This. This is all I need. And a ball. I don't need anything but that. In the same way, in our spiritual lives, in our journeys through this story we call life, we have added so much that isn't meant to be there. We have added all this excessiveness. What will my friends think of me? That our identity, our very self-esteem is wrapped up in what other people think. And Jesus says, follow my way. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Worry about what I think. We worry about security. And it is not a bad thing to plan for the rest of our lives. But does it come at the expense of caring for the poor and the needy? Because James tells us the true religion is this, not being polluted, not being burdened by the ways of this world and looking after the widows and orphans. And we get distracted with all the other stuff. Well, what if I don't get that promotion? Well, who knows? You might have more time to spend with your family. And then we start to do things like we pile on things that are good things inherently of themselves, but we allow them to push out our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't spend time with you, Lord, because I need to spend time with my family. And it sounds holy and righteous to say you should spend time with your family. And it is a good thing. Do not neglect raising your children and spending time with your parents and with your friends and with your family. But do not do it at the expense of the most important relationship in all of the world. Your God and your King. Because the most important thing we as families can give to one another is a right perspective on a sold out and disciplined and ordered life of loving the Father and the Son empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Do what I did. For I am gentle and humble in heart. So maybe there's a start. Gentleness and humility. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, Jesus wants to put a yoke on our back that fits exactly right. That points us in the right direction And if you know anything about a yoke, a yoke has a job. It's to get the job done, to make the fields ready for cultivation, ready to see the seed go from a seed into whatever plant you may need it to be. In the same way, Jesus is cultivating our hearts. And if we will go in the path he has laid before us, the perfect fitting yoke upon us won't always be the easiest, but it is always the best way. And as we follow him, and as we follow his yoke, casting off the yokes the world places upon us and says, Lord, I'm going to wear your yoke 
upon my back and I'm going to go in your direction. He cultivates us for service of his that we can go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we can do so joyfully. If it means a sacrifice, whether it be of finances, whether it be of career, whether it be of time, we do it like, here you are, God. I'm yours. And there is nothing more freeing than being a slave of Christ. It's so paradoxical, it's genius. We need him. And he's already said, I'm here. Take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. So today, can we find rest in our souls with Jesus Christ? Will we look to our judge and say, thank you for providing a way that we may stand up and be seen as righteous through your son, Jesus Christ? And when those burdens come, Will we cast them aside and come to him to accept his invitation for his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Let's pray. Lord, we can't earn your grace. You've given it through your son, Jesus, through his work on the cross and his resurrection. And I thank you for that. And now I pray that we would once for all learn to rest in you, to take your yoke upon our backs and go the direction you would have us to go. Refine us, cultivate us so that we may bear much fruit for you, that we may bring glory to your name. Amen.